yesterday was the 105th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic. You remember it left port on April the 10th, 2012. Its final port of call before heading out to the United States was Cork, Ireland. It was the largest and the most luxurious ocean liner ever. This incredible ocean liner that was said to be unsinkable. It headed out and for about four days sailed into the North Atlantic. And then it was on April the 14th, late that evening, when it hit an iceberg. And it was slightly after midnight, about 2 o'clock, 2.20 in the morning of April the 15th, that the Titanic broke apart and went to the bottom of the ocean, two miles below the surface of the North Atlantic. There were 2,200 people on board. More than 1,500 perished. Because there were so many wealthy and rich and the powerful, I mean, this story was talked about all around the world. People always had a fascination there with the Titanic. But we all knew that we would never find it. I mean, no one really knew where it went down in the North Atlantic. And now it was more than two miles deep. It would be impossible to find it. Impossible until 1985. September the 1st, Robert Ballard had developed a little submarine that could be towed along behind a ship and a little bitty robotic eye that could go out and look around called J.J. And they were going along and it was around 2.20 in the morning when suddenly they saw something and as they went to look closer and what they discovered was it, it was the boiler from the Titanic. They began to follow the debris field and there they suddenly saw the hull sitting broken in half upright in the sand bed there at the ocean. No one had ever believed they'd find the Titanic again. That was 1985. They came back in 1986 and in 1986 they began filming and, and recording all the things that they were seeing. It really helped to spur interest in the Titanic again around the world. And of course, the movie came out and people got more interested in the Titanic. But I didn't really realize how passionate people still are about the Titanic until his 105th anniversary. What I learned was there is a company that is going to start taking tours in April of 2018. They're going to take you out to the site where the Titanic went down and then they've built this submarine that will carry nine people at a time. And it will go 13,000 feet down to the ocean floor and you can tour all around the Titanic right up close and personal and see it for yourself. The cost is $105,129 a person which is the price of a first-class ticket on the Titanic in inflated and inflationary-adjusted terms. And the really bad news is all the seats are sold out for the first year of all of its trips. People want to get up close and see the Titanic personally. What I learned was in China... 
They are building a replica of the Titanic on, the, on a river they have. It will permanently be there dry docked. It won't go off sailing, but it's a full-size replica of the Titanic. So you can come on board and you can see the ballroom and the staterooms and, and wander through the Titanic. What I learned was that in 2016, the International Travel Association named the number one tourist destination in the world the Titanic Museum in Belfast, Ireland. It was opened in 2012 on the 100th anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, and it is now the number one tourist destination in the world. 3.5 million people already went by to go see it. Now, all these people are fascinated with the Titanic, but, you know, none are probably more passionate about it than Robert Ballard. For he was the one who had been told it was impossible, and he found it in 1985. He has since gone on to make all kinds of discoveries. He also discovered the Bismarck and where it went down. He's discovered a couple of nuclear submarines the United States Navy lost years ago. He's made all kinds of discoveries. But it was a few years ago, he was invited to give a commencement address at a university. And he was talking about his passion of being this explorer and making these discoveries. And he came to talk to these university students about their life that was about to begin. And what he said to them was, whenever I've gone out to do one of these explorations, the first time we went out, we always failed whether it was to the Titanic or the Bismarck or whoever, we always failed and we would come back and examine our mistakes and then go try again. Sometimes we failed a second time and a third time. And then he said to these students, if there is one thing I could leave you with, it would be this. The test you must pass is not whether you fall down or not, but whether you can get back up. The journeys you will now begin in life will test you, and the hardest test of all will look to see how determined you are to live your dream. How strong is your heart? How strong is your heart? That was the question the disciples were going to have to ask. How strong is your heart? How determined are you to live your dream? Because the disciples had lost so much. They grieved so much. The pain was so much. They had lost Jesus, this friend that they loved so dearly. They lost their dream. The dream of overthrowing the Roman government, the dream of reestablishing the kingdom of Israel here on earth. When they buried Jesus, they buried their dreams. Would they have a heart that is strong? How much did they desire to live their dream? You know, if you would ask the disciples, do you think you'll ever see Jesus again? They would have said, are you kidding? I mean, that's impossible. He is dead. We buried him. 
What the disciples were soon about to learn is what Jesus had already told them. What is impossible with man is possible with God. It was Easter that was about to tell them about impossible possibilities. This morning, I want to conclude this sermon series we've been looking at through all of Lent, Impossible Possibilities. And we have said that what we all really want in life is to live a life of meaning, a life of purpose, to believe that our life has significance, to know joy. But because of things that have happened in life, because of circumstances, because of choices we've made, sometimes that feels impossible. But it's the good news of Easter that says to us, there are impossible possibilities. And I want us to look at those possibilities today as we look at the message of Easter. And I think there's three important things to see. First of all, it is Easter that tells us you can look at your fears. You can look in the tomb and see the opportunities of life. You look at the women. I love the women in this story. It's the women who were there when Jesus was crucified. They didn't have time when the body was taken down on Friday from the cross before the sun went down and the Sabbath began. And Joseph of Arimathea took the body and laid it in the tomb. They rolled a stone in front of it. The Romans posted guards. They had to be at home and now they waited for first light on Sunday morning and they headed to the tomb so they could anoint the body for burial. Now, they knew they faced a huge problem. Who was going to roll the stone away? They could not do it. And knowing they could not do it and they faced a huge problem, still they went. They still went. And when they got there, what they discovered was God had already rolled the stone away. It's that lesson how often when you and I will confront the biggest obstacles, the fears in our life, when we go look at them, we discover it's God who's already been rolling the stone away. When you look into the tomb, you see the opportunities for life. Have you ever thought about the fact, why did God roll the stone away? Did God roll the stone away from the tomb so that Jesus could get out? Did God roll the stone away so the, woman, the women could see in? I think it's the latter. We know that the disciples are going to gather in the upper room and they make a real point of saying, and the doors were locked and Jesus came and stood among us. Jesus didn't need open doors or open tombs. No, the stone is rolled away so the women could look inside at the thing they thought was their greatest fear and rather than seeing death, they would see the opportunities for life. What are the things you're afraid of that keep you from living a life of meaning and purpose and significance and joy? This past year at Christmas, Marsha and I were over to a friend's office. We were there with her doing some work when, when she got a UPS delivery. And she was so excited. 
it was her husband's Christmas present. And, and she got it and she said, could I open it? Do you mind if I take, open it right now? I said, not at all. Open it up. Let's see what you got him. And she, she opened up this package and she pulled out this frame. It was a piece of art. And what it was, it was a framed group of bugs. Dead bugs. And when I saw it, I thought, man, he's on the naughty list. Don't know what he did this year when your Christmas present is a bunch of framed dead bugs. But she started explaining it to us. There's an artist named Christopher Marley. I don't know if you've ever heard of Christopher Marley. I mean, what he works with are dead beetles and bugs and butterflies and some other things as well now. But he takes them and and he creates these, these mosaics, the symmetry of these beautiful bugs. I mean, when we stopped and really started looking at them, I mean, they have all these different colors and these perfect symmetry. And they put together in all these different designs. It's, it's actually quite beautiful. In fact, these things sell for hundreds and then thousands and even tens of thousands of dollars. They are amazing. He does not heighten the color or change them in any way. They're all just natural insects. It actually all started 20 years ago. Christopher Marley was a model. He worked for print and runway. He traveled all around the world. But he loved being outdoors and he loved nature, always looking for reptiles. What he hated were insects, especially beetles. Ever since he was a kid, he hated beetles. I mean, have you ever had a beetle land on you? You know, it's their legs. I mean, they just kind of get into your skin. They don't just fly away. You don't just knock them off. I mean, you got to pull a beetle off of you. He hated beetles. Had a phobia of insects. But he always wanted to get out in nature. And, and it was when he was in Thailand about 20 years ago that one day, out of the blue, he thought, I need to confront my fears. And so he went and started looking at these exotic beetles in Thailand. And he came to realize they were beautiful. And so he had the idea of putting them together and creating a a picture. And the one thing he does though is he takes the legs and makes sure he folds them under. He doesn't want to have to look at the legs. (laughs) And so he takes these beetles and these bugs and now butterflies and all kinds of things and And he started making this, and he lives in Oregon, and it was a huge success. So much so that now he has catchers. Catchers in Southeast Asia, Latin America, South America, North Africa. All these people who spend their time catching all these exotic, beautiful bugs, and they send them to him, and he pays them for them. Now, the neat thing about this is, Because they are paying all these indigenous people to catch these bugs, they now are making a living and don't have to sell their land to developers who come in and clear-cut the rainforest. So he's helping to save the rainforest and help giving the indigenous people jobs who can live on their land, and he gets all these incredible bugs and sells them for thousands. He said, I'm trying to create something that I hope God will want to put on his coffee table. They are the beauty of his creation. 
And it all happened because one day he was willing to look at his greatest fears, his phobias, and what he saw was beauty and a new opportunity. How many things do you fear that hold you back from living a life of meaning and purpose and joy? The women came to the tomb not knowing how they would confront the great obstacle only to discover it was God who had already rolled back the stone and they could look in the tomb and it was empty. The new possibilities for life. But secondly, Easter. Easter tells us that you can stop mourning the past and you look to the future. The disciples had so much to mourn. The death of their friend. Who hasn't mourned the death of somebody you love? To mourn the death of their dream? When that thing you've always wanted and you realize never is going to happen? No, they had so much to regret. I mean, they regretted Thursday night. If they had just been paying attention and caught on to what Judas was doing, he was acting strange, they could have stopped him. They regretted going to the garden and Jesus said, could you stay awake and pray with me? And they went to sleep. If they'd have been awake, maybe they could have fought the guards off. They regretted running away and hiding and denying Jesus. They regretted when he came before Pilate, they weren't in the crowd to shout for Jesus rather than Barabbas when Pilate said, who do you want me to give to you? They had so much that they regretted, so much of the past they now mourned. But look at what happens when they meet the risen Christ. Jesus is not there to condemn, to berate, to punish. When they are confronted with the resurrected Christ, Jesus doesn't talk about the past. He keeps talking about the future. Who can you be? Who is God calling you to be? You don't mourn the past. You start facing the future. It is Easter who gives us our hope. I read a book a while back. It was entitled, If There's One Thing I've Learned. I thought, what a great title. If There's One Thing I've Learned. It was James Green who got the idea. He wrote to a whole bunch of his friends and he asked them, if there's one thing you've learned you'd want to pass on, what is it? And then they all wrote him back. He took their stories, put it together, and he had a book. What a great idea. One of the stories that came back from his good friend was a guy named Doug. And Doug explained that what he learned was back when he was 36 years old. 36 years old, and he said he was married. He, he loved his wife. Their life was kind of just average, rolling along. It was blah, wasn't exciting, wasn't horrible. It was just the same year after year. And... and and then his brother and his wife wanted to take a trip to Europe. And he said he and his wife did not like to travel. They'd never traveled. Certainly never overseas. But they just kept on pushing them until finally they agreed. And when they agreed, that year they went to Lisbon. They landed in Lisbon and they traveled through Spain. 
And Doug discovered he loved it. Learning history, seeing art. He never felt more alive. The next year, he and his wife went back on their own to Europe. And this time they went to Florence. Wanted to go to Italy. And he wound up learning a little Italian. I mean, it's the birth of the Renaissance. I mean, there you could see works from Michelangelo, from Leonardo da Vinci, from Raphael. Oh, he found that he loved art in his soul. He found that he loved history. Being there made him feel alive. And and then one day it all happened that changed his life. He left the hotel. His wife was there and he needed to run a couple of errands. And so as he headed off to run these errands, he was heading through one of the squares when here came a group of American high school students, obviously 17, 18 years old. Here they came the other way, and they knew he was an American. Hi, hi. They went on by. And then he stopped. And he turned around and he watched them go. And the thought hit him. What was I doing when I was 18 years old? He went over and he sat down in a little cafe. And he just started thinking. When I was 18, it wasn't in a good place. He's trying to make sure he could get by and do as little as he could. He was trying to make sure, I mean, he didn't play any kind of sports or activities, extracurricular. He didn't go to the prom. He didn't go to graduation. His picture wasn't in the yearbook. No, he spent all of his time in high school simply complaining about his parents and teachers. Life had always gone that way. He'd rocked along for 18 years, just kind of getting by. And suddenly, he was overwhelmed with an incredible sense of grief as he thought about these last 18 years and all that he had wasted. He started thinking, what if I'd come to Florence when I was 18 years old? Would I have discovered this love of art in my soul? Would I have learned in Italian? Would I be speaking Italian fluently? Would I have made friends in Italy? Would I have dated Italian girls? What direction would my life have taken? He just sat there and started thinking about it, and he was overwhelmed with grief as he mourned the past. And he said suddenly... It just kind of changed, and he thought, what am I going to regret when I turn 50 if I don't do it now? I'm 36. What am I going to regret if I don't do it now? What am I going to regret when I turn 70 if I don't go do it? What am I going to regret on the day that I die if I don't go do it? He said, it changed my life from that day forward. Because from that day forward, I stopped mourning all that lost time. And I've just started asking, what am I going to regret if I don't do it soon? The good news of Easter is Jesus didn't come to berate us and condemn us of the past. When he meets the disciples, he didn't talk about that. They had so much to mourn. 
What Jesus talked about was the future. And can you be the person that God has called you to be? How strong is your heart? How badly do you want to live your dream? Easter is what gives us hope. And so third, the message of Easter quite simply is that the tomb is empty. That death is not the end of life. That death is simply the doorway into the presence of God. You know, when the disciples looked into the empty tomb and when they would meet the resurrected Christ, they would come to understand that we are more than a body. We are more than a body. The tomb is empty. Death is not the end of life. It is the doorway into the presence of God. And you know, the old saying is, when you're not afraid to die, you're not afraid to live. You're not afraid to confront your fears, to look at the big obstacles of your life, to look into the tomb and to see new opportunities, to stop mourning the past, to look at the future. And what we know is if you will live well now, then when the day comes that you face your own death, you will know peace. If you live well now, then you know peace. And you're not afraid because you know it's not the end. It's simply the doorway into the presence of God. And you will have lived with meaning and purpose and significance and known joy. And so you come to the end and you're not afraid to die. You know, one of the things about Easter, it forces all of us to look at our own mortality. Easter reminds us every year of the fact that we're all going to die. And when we come to that day, how do we not live with a sense of regret? It is Easter that helps us to know how to have peace. You know, it wasn't long ago that Eben Alexander was here speaking at St. Luke's with Town Hall. And it was a great privilege to get to hear him speak and to get him meet him personally. You remember, it was a number of years ago, Eben Alexander wrote a New York Times best-selling book entitled Proof of Heaven. Now, I got to tell you, I don't care for the title because I don't believe you can prove anything about heaven. But I do love his story and what he had to say. You remember, Eben Alexander was a... a a, a neurosurgeon. And so he was a man of science. And it so often happens in science, you start believing that the only thing that is real is what you can see and what you can touch and what you can measure. Don't get me wrong, I love science. It brought us out of the dark ages into the Renaissance. It got us away from witches and magic and bloodletting. No, I love science. But sometimes with science, you and I forget that reality is more than just what you can see and touch and measure. That we are more and that death leads us into another reality, into the presence of God that no one can explain. I get anxious and nervous when people tell you all exactly what it's like. No one can explain We simply believe it is something good in the presence of God.
Well, Eben had a near-death experience back in 2008. And when he had his own near-death experience, he had an infection, was in a coma for a week. They thought he would die or come back a vegetable, and he recovers, and he's perfectly fine. He had had an experience, a near-death experience. And now that he had come back, he looked at everything differently. And he believed without a doubt, death is a doorway into a new reality, the presence of God. And what he began to realize was there were so many patients who had been talking to him about this and quite often he didn't pay attention because it's not what he believed. One of those times was right before he had this experience. He'd had a a lady named Susanna. Susanna and her husband George had been married for a number of years and then George developed brain cancer. He came to Eben. He operated. They bought him a year and a half. And then George died. He was a great guy. Several years had gone by. And then it was their daughter, Christina, who developed brain cancer. This beautiful young lady, so kind and full of life, she had brain cancer. And the prognosis was not good. She came to see Eben to see what she could do. And now he was so afraid afraid of what he could or could not do. And he was at the hospital examining the MRIs, trying to figure out how do we go in? Where do we cut it out? What do we try to do to see if we can help this lady? And the nurse came in and said, it is Susanna who's on the line. She wants to talk to you now. She says it's important. And Eben said he's learned long ago that as a doctor, you take care of your patient's physical needs but you need to take care of their emotional needs as well. And so it was that he he said, all right. He immediately stopped and went and took the phone. Susanna said, Dr. Alexander, I just wanted you to know how much Christina has been so afraid of dying. But last night, George, her father came to her in a dream and he told her, you don't have to be afraid. It's all going to be okay. It really helped. I'm so glad, he said. I'm so glad that she had that dream and I'm I'm glad that it helped her. No, 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 doctor, you, you don't understand. Last night, George came to her in a dream and he was wearing a yellow shirt and a yellow fedora. Ah, said Evan, it just shows there is no dress code in heaven. No, 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 doctor, you don't understand. I bought that yellow shirt and that fedora for George when we were dating. And it was kind of bold. It was kind of dashing. But I felt he just looked so handsome and and so good looking in it. He took it on our honeymoon and that's what he wore. And when we were coming back home, we packed it and, and our luggage got lost and we never found it. Well, said Eben, I'm sure that that Christina has loved hearing all those stories about that yellow shirt and that yellow fedora, and I'm sure it has brought her great comfort. Doctor, you don't get it. That was our secret. We never told anyone. You see, we thought it was kind of silly. It was pretty flashy. So we never talked about it. We never told Christina or anyone else. We never replaced it. 
that last night Christina had a dream and her father came to her wearing a yellow shirt and a yellow fedora and he told her, you don't have to worry. You don't have to be afraid. It's all going to be okay. And she's not afraid anymore. And Eben said, looking back, I thought Susanna was calling me so that I could comfort her. And now I realize she was calling me to comfort me because she knew the truth. The truth is that death is not the end. It is a doorway into the presence of God. You don't have to be afraid. The truth is the tomb is empty. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer.